Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Who still has trouble getting access to reliable Internet in New England? And why does it matter? The Internet is, is a utility at this point. It is a necessity in the state of our culture. And for it not to be provided uh, statewide, every hollow, every mountaintop, all over, is unacceptable. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next, and we'll explore broadband access around our region from rural to urban. Plus, should we rely on invasive species to help reduce our carbon footprint? Is that the right approach to take, or should we be doing something to reduce our carbon? We'll also dig into the realities of race in places that are mostly white. We're very kumbaya. We're very, we are the world. You hear this phrase, oh, you know, Maine is so white. We can never attract people who are non-white because it's so white here. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start our show by considering the necessities of life in 2019. Now, nobody's going to argue that we need clean drinking water and a way to deal with our waste. We need electricity and some way to heat your home. Getting all those necessities can still be a struggle, but they're universally seen as building blocks for a functioning society. So what about reliable high-speed Internet service? All businesses need it. It's become increasingly important for medical care, and students need it to do their homework. It drives our global and regional economy, but as the need for the Internet grows, the lack of access to broadband is increasingly becoming a problem. So we asked listeners to weigh in. Hi, it's Dave Panagor from Provincetown, Massachusetts. Here on the Outer Cape, we have broadband on paper through one provider. But in practice, our upload and download speeds are so slow, you could count it on your right hand or your left hand, but not on all ten fingers. This severely hampers our local economy. Whether there are small businesses during the summer who need their credit card readers working all the time, or remote workers, the challenge is... Our growth is hampered by a lack of public dollars available for our middle mile. Hi, this is Lon Seidman. I'm a full-time YouTube creator located in Essex, Connecticut. My biggest frustration with Internet performance is that ISPs and policymakers are focused primarily on the download speeds, but not contemplating the economic impact of upload speeds. It takes me about 45 minutes to upload a video to one of the five content platforms I work with. And this is the absolute fastest speed that I can purchase, even with fiber optic lines running right past the end of my driveway. Yet I can download the same video on that same internet plan in about a minute and a half. The problem is that in many parts of New England, this is all we get because we have regional ISP monopolies that have absolutely no market pressure to improve service. And this, I believe, has a negative economic impact given the amount of time it takes for us to transmit large files to clients, coworkers, and in my case, video platforms. We really need to be looking at the entire connection and not just half of it. 
The Federal Communications Commission issued the 2018 Broadband Deployment Report in February of that year. In it, the commission detailed the percentage of urban and rural areas in each state with access to broadband, which they define as 25 Mbps download and 3 Mbps upload. The biggest broadband gap in New England is in the rural areas of northern states. In Maine, for instance, nearly all urban residents have access to broadband, compared with only 85.7% of rural residents. And in Vermont, more than 98% of urban areas have access, but less than 80% in rural areas. And that's most of the state. VPR's John Dillon takes a look at the challenges and renewed efforts to bring broadband to Vermont's underserved areas, especially the Northeast Kingdom, the rural corner of the state bordered by the Connecticut River and the Canadian border. Remember this sound? For Jenny Green, who lives in North Danville, the anachronistic tones of a dial-up modem are not a reminder of the past. It's how she connects with the digital world today. I, I would say this is longer than usual. And frankly, when it gets like this, I just say the heck with it. A blue wheel turned slowly clockwise on her computer screen, and almost five minutes passed before a website opens. I, I've lectured all my friends to not send email to this email address because if there's more than two, it takes forever for them to load. God forbid there's a picture. When Green wants faster speed, she'll drive into Danville to the library or local bakery. But that's not secure. She knows she'll soon have to do much more online, such as banking. And for that, she needs a much faster and safer connection. The reality of of something just like paying bills, I, I... can imagine that the day is coming when you can't pay them with a stamp. Green's internet inconvenience also has a financial cost. She lives alone in a beautifully renovated farmhouse, but at 83, she eventually wants to move to town, and she knows her North Danville place will fetch a lower price without adequate internet. And being a broadband backwater has a financial cost for the state as a whole. I'm in that demographic they're looking for, you know, these... uh tech workers that work remotely. Jonathan Baker is chief technology officer for Gain Life, a startup based in Boston. He's got internet at his home office outside of Danville, but it's a fairly slow DSL service. Which maxes out at about seven down and one up, which is just, uh, you know, it's late 90s speeds or less. It's, It's terrible. A bit of tech speak here. Those numbers refer to speeds at which data can move, So Baker gets 7 megabits per second of data download and one uploading. That's well below the current minimum definition of broadband set by the Federal Communications Commission, which is 25 Mbps download and 3 up. So when Baker needs to upload files that are gigabits in size, he has to drive to a co-working space in Lindenville. Because otherwise, uploading a gigabyte of data on the connection I have at the house is uh, hours and hours and hours. Last year, the state launched a program that will spend $10,000 apiece to attract remote workers to Vermont. Baker says instead, the state should allocate the money to improving broadband. I mean, the whole motivation behind that is to move away from the cities. So people will say, oh, well, you know, those people, they can move to Burlington or Montpelier, right, where there's, there's, there's good internet. Well, that's not what we want to do. What, the whole idea behind being a remote worker is you can, you know, move to a rural area and live a kind of a lifestyle. 
The lack of internet is particularly acute in the Northeast Kingdom, where only about 47% of residents and business have access to broadband that meets the FCC definition. Statewide, 73% of the addresses are served by internet at those speeds or greater. The Northeast Kingdom Collaborative works to improve economic and community development in the region. Its director, Catherine Sims, says the NEK is lagging further and further behind the rest of Vermont, even compared to other rural areas. So broadband is a big focus of her job these days. When you don't have access to Internet or an Internet that's reliable or high speed enough, it means you can't work remotely and do your job. Your kid might you know, not have access to the educational opportunities that other kids with higher speed Internet do. This digital divide is not new. It has roots in the deregulated telecom world that's left rural areas behind. Clay Purvis is the state's director of telecommunications and connectivity. He points out that unlike traditional telephone service, Internet and cable companies are not required to serve a customer. Broadband is kind of open to the vagaries of competition, and federal law, the federal policy has always been light touch. We're, we're, we're going to not regulate this. We're going to let the free market solve it. And so urban areas and rural areas are divided. There's no parity. And bringing broadband to the hinterlands is not cheap. The state estimates it will cost $500 million to $1.4 billion to bring fiber-optic internet all around Vermont. The legislature and Governor Phil Scott obviously don't have that kind of money, but there is an intense focus on broadband this session. Scott wants to raise $1 million in bonds to help communities with connectivity projects, And House Speaker Mitzi Johnson says broadband is a top priority. Putting that priority into action is a main focus of the House Energy and Technology Committee. Laura Sibelia from Dover is the committee's vice chair. We want to provide enough support for rural towns where, you know, we've got a a farmer and a teacher and a seamstress maybe, you know, uh, running the town. They're not telecommunications experts. So we want to make sure that... We give them a chance to help their people and that we provide enough support. So that's what I think we're trying to do here this year. You lucked out. You managed to come on my monthly cookie baking. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. They're good. Mm. Help yourself. At Jenny Green's house in North Danville, we're still waiting for the New York Times webpage to slowly load on her laptop. We joke about the snail-like service. And the delay gives me time to sample some of her delicious home-baked oatmeal raisin cookies. But then, Green makes a serious point about a state struggling to serve its citizens with an essential tool of modern life. The Internet is, is a utility at this point. It is a necessity in the state of our culture. And for it not to be provided uh, statewide, every hollow, every mountaintop, all over, is unacceptable. What's needed, she says, is a public works program on the scale of the Rural Electrification Administration that brought electricity to the last corners of the Northeast Kingdom during the Depression. But for now, as soon as the snow subsides a bit, Green says she'll probably buy a satellite dish for improved Internet. The state doesn't count that service as broadband, but Green says it may be better than nothing. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. Remember that legislation John talked with lawmaker Laura Sibili about? Well, at the end of March, the Vermont House overwhelmingly backed that bill. It would expand broadband access in the rural areas of the state. 
It's currently pending in the Senate. As rural communities get broadband access, there are questions, though, about who should provide it. Recently, the small town of Charlemont in the northwest corner of Massachusetts made an interesting choice when it came to building a broadband network for the town. We love it here. It's dark at night. There's no, not a lot of streetlights around. You can see stars. That's why I live here. And a lot of people would love to live in this area, but with the way telecommunications is today, with people being able to work from home, they can't work from home in our in our town. That's Trevor Mackey. He's on Charlemont's Broadband Committee. The town didn't previously have very good access to broadband, and recently Comcast offered to build the town a network. But at a special town meeting in December of 2018, the town's residents decided against it, instead opting to build their own broadband network. Here's Trevor Mackey again. We know each other in this town. We're a small town. You know if there's a problem, you know who you're going to come knocking on the door to. And I don't think any member of the committee wanted to have their neighbor saying, you sold us a bill of goods. So we did a lot of due diligence of to build not a case, but an apples-to-apples comparison between a Comcast offer and a town-owned network. Mackey told us that they expect the network will be ready in early 2021. While getting broadband access to rural areas is a big concern, that doesn't always mean that urban areas have complete access. Many city residents feel left out of the conversation with slow access, high cost, and no competition from multiple carriers. These problems are felt most acutely in low-income and minority communities. So we invited in Ellen Katz, Consumer Counsel for the State of Connecticut, and Janice Fleming, CEO of Strategic Outreach Services and a community organizer in Hartford. Ellen and Janice, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Ellen, I'm going to start with you. Maybe you can explain in your mind what exactly broadband access is supposed to mean. Well, what I hope it means, what I think it should mean, is that every citizen has universal access to affordable high-speed broadband. That's not what we have yet because there's no rules that require that like we have with electricity and, say, running water. But I think I have yet to meet anyone who wants to meet in a house, live in a house that doesn't have broadband. How does Connecticut do uh, when it comes to broadband access in terms of statewide coverage? Now, Connecticut is the most connected state in the nation. I feel like I should set the bar there. However, we still see lots of people, lots of consumers, particularly in the quiet corners, who have access to almost nothing or only very, very low quality dial-up. But also, one of the issues that that we spend a lot of time on is the urban digital divide. The folks in the communities which tend to be lower income communities in our urban centers where we have a lot of consumers who don't have access to good broadband and what they have access to is very expensive. Why is that? What's the limitation for people in urban areas to get better broadband access? Well, if you look at the existing telecom providers, they have a business model. And their business model is they go where there's the most money. And there's not a lot of incentive to upgrade infrastructure in these urban areas where it costs it can cost a lot of money because you have to tear up the streets and go underground. And these tend to be consumers at the low, lower end of the income spectrum. So if they're, if they're able to afford anything, they're buying probably a, a lower package, a lower price package. And so 
it's an economic barrier, I think, for a lot of the existing carriers, which is why we've been working with cities and folks like Janice Fleming to say, all right, how do we get broadband in the hands of these people? Janice, maybe you can explain from your standpoint what the issue is with broadband access in urban areas, specifically Hartford, where you work. Yes. When we were first made aware of this issue, it was coming from a lot of the small businesses in which we work with. That's how I actually met Ellen Katz. But as we dug deeper in the issue, we realized that it was impacting not just small businesses, but communities of parents more specifically. We have a lot of our Harford students who are being bused to suburban schools in the way that they communicate uh, with parents uh, about homework is, is through the Internet. And what we were finding is that a lot of our residents couldn't afford the cost of the broadband service alone or whether it was in a package. And whether and if even if they had the discounted package at nine ninety nine, it wasn't providing to Ellen Point the broadband strength that would allow a five or six family, three or four family to all work online together. So essentially we found that you had kids sitting outside of McDonald's, kids who couldn't complete their homework because of the cutbacks, libraries are closing earlier, and that technology in and of itself, broadband services in and of itself is no longer a luxury. I'd love to have you talk more about that because I, I'm I'm thinking about where we are in terms of technology in 2019 and where perhaps we should be. And when you say it's no longer a luxury, is it your sense that it's still being priced as a luxury, that it's still being provided to people as something that you can buy if you want it? But what 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 you're saying is this is something that's necessary for students to to survive. Absolutely. I see it no different than a book. And if we're not careful we will have people comparing what it was when you didn't allow minorities to have access to books, and now we're not having letting, allowing minorities to have access to technology in a way where it's fair and equitable across the board. So what's a solution for this, though, Ellen? If you, if you want to make sure the costs are low enough for people to have this service in their home, make it widely available to everyone— there's there's a little bit of a, an inflection point there where carriers aren't going to want to invest in places where there's not some sort of subsidy, where there's not somebody paying the bills. But you also can't expect families who are living at the lower end of the income scale to take on $100 a, a month to pay for Internet so that their kids can have the same leg up mm-hmm. as kids in, in West Hartford. What do you do about that? Well, I think what you have to do is look at every model that's available and every option. And, for example, Mayor Boughton in Danbury is, I just heard him testify before the legislature, he's looking at a community-wide network that he's doing a public-private partnership with that will touch every house with high-speed broadband for 15 bucks a month. And that would be a complete game changer. Mm-hmm. And there's also the potential if you have, and I'm, I'm not talking, you know, government runs the internet, but I'm talking about government enables access for everyone. That's how we got electricity. <laughs> FDR said we are going to make sure every citizen has has uh, access to electricity, and that's what we need to do. And so there's models like that. 
In some communities, they're providing broadband-enabled laptops to the low-income students. But if you have, you know, a large population that you need to serve, then you're really talking about you need to bring it to every home. And that's why we've seen so many municipalities who are interested in the models like Mayor Bouton is talking about. Because it's not just students. It's also when my son went to apply for his first job in high school, I kept driving him around. He kept coming out of the stores. And I was like, go talk to someone. He said, no, you have to apply online. Mm -hmm. So for entry-level positions... The vast majority have to apply online as well. So it's it's an economic issue, it's an education issue, it's a health issue. So it's an infrastructure issue. We are talking about in the state of Connecticut developing urban cities. The more you talk about infrastructure, the more you're talking about opportunities to address old broadband systems. And I would argue that we missed an opportunity when we were redeveloping Route forty four to use that as a pilot. Once you have the ground up, there's no better time to talk about laying down conduit than that time. And for listeners who are outside of this immediate area, maybe you can explain exactly what, what this meant. For for quite some time, a main thoroughfare Absolutely. of the largest African-American community in Hartford was essentially torn up because of a big water project. Mm-hmm. But at that time, that while that water project was going in, there wasn't fiber optics going on the ground. That is exactly right. We, we focus on urban and rural, but I can assure you there are a lot of suburban communities as well that don't have access to broadband services, given locations or whatever. But I would like to see when we're, as the Connecticut begin to continue to develop its urban infrastructure, that that conversation is a part of it, that when we're breaking up streets, is there a way to, to lay out conduit at that moment for cost savings? Mm-hmm. You know, it's already open. We don't have to reopen it and to ensure that it benefits not just businesses because in urban communities, businesses are located around schools. That was obvious in our research as well. I want to thank Janice Fleming and Ellen Katz for joining us today and bringing us this issue. Janice and Ellen, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having us. Coming up, we'll meet the head of the NAACP on Martha's Vineyard. But first, how invasive species can help combat climate change. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. You may have heard of a much maligned invasive plant called Phragmites. The tall, bushy-topped reed is enemy number one for many ecologists, and environmental groups spend big money trying to keep it from taking over wetlands. But emerging research shows that Phragmites may have a shot at redemption, and it concerns the plant's complicated role in climate change. WBUR's Barbara Moran brings us the story. Oh, this is serious fragments. <laughs> this is a story about a bad guy who might have a shot at redemption. Its name is Phragmites australis, an invasive plant commonly known as the common reed, or as some call it, the all-too-common reed. Is that Phragmites up there? Everything here is Phragmites along here, and there's some on that side. There's always a lot of Phragmites. <laughs> Robert Buxbaum, an ecologist with Mass Audubon, has been fighting Phragmites for decades. One battlefield is the Rough Meadows Wildlife Sanctuary in Rowley, part of the largest salt marsh in New England. 
we head in. I don't think it'll be too wet for you. Let's do it. Yeah. The plant is a familiar sight in New England marshes, where it typically stands about 13 feet tall. It crowds out native plants, destroys habitats, and clogs streams. The state, Mass Audubon, and the National Park Service all have programs to combat it, but it's remarkably hard to kill. One tactic? Drown it in salt water. Another? Crack open its hollow stem and drip poison down its neck. So we treated the Phragmites, and you can see it was gone. It looked great. We step into a muddy thicket of Phragmites, with reeds towering over our heads. Mass Audubon sprayed the patch with herbicide in 2013. And then all of a sudden, over the last, the last five years, it's come back. So it's very resilient. You need to keep after it. Phragmites is a formidable foe because of its tall plants, dense stands, and deep roots. But these same traits can offer surprising benefits for climate change. Right now, there's too much carbon dioxide in the air. We need to pull it out and put it somewhere. Phragmites can store a lot of carbon in the soil when it dies, even more than native plants, according to a recent study. And there's another plus. Its dense growth can help build up marshes against sea level rise. So while many scientists remain dead set against the common reed, some are looking at this old enemy in a new way. Yeah, we try to knock it back every yeah. once in a while, yeah. but it takes wow. a lot of time and effort and money. And Nancy Pow is a biologist at the Parker River National Wildlife Refuge on Plum Island. She was one of about 30 or 40 marsh experts who gathered at the Plum Island Ecological Research Site last month to drink beer, eat pizza, and talk about wetlands. And some of these conversations now include Phragmites' role in climate change. You know, because it's such a robust grower, um, it does make a lot of biomass, and some of that gets turned into peat. It's sequestering, it's taking carbon out of the air and putting in the roots. Pow says the trade-offs are complicated. Phragmites gives off methane, a potent greenhouse gas. And the plant only stores carbon permanently when it decomposes into peat. And the peat is left alone. Pow says that keeping marshes healthy and diverse is her priority, for now anyway. So she'll keep on fighting, or treating frag, as she calls it, where she can. But other ecologists may decide differently. In the mid-Atlantic, where they are losing a lot of the marshes really quickly, there is discussions about uh, whether or not they should be treating frag, um, because it is one of the few plants that is keeping up with sea level rise. um, And they had a very aggressive treatment plan down there. No scientist I spoke to could imagine actually planting Phragmites. But where the invader has already won or has overtaken a mudflat or brownfield, some think maybe they should just leave it alone. Smithsonian ecologist Ian Davidson, who wrote a recent paper on carbon storage in invasive plants, says context matters. So there's a fairly universal agreement that we should try and reduce and prevent invasions as much as we can. But there's also the world that we have right now where they already are in certain systems. You know, this is one factor that should be considered among many. Back on the marsh, Mass Audubon's Buxbaum said he bears the invader no ill will, but he doesn't want to use it to fight climate change. You know, to me, there's other ways to handle it. You know, should we be depending on an invasive species, which causes a, a degradation of the habitat to make up for our foibles of, uh, of uh, emitting too much carbon into the atmosphere. Is that the right approach to take, or should we be doing something to reduce our carbon? But reducing our carbon footprint quickly enough to avoid the worst consequences of climate change won't be easy. And it may mean accepting some of our old enemies. 
For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Barbara Moran. Forests also play a key role in keeping our air clean. That's because when trees breathe, they suck up carbon dioxide, release oxygen, and store that leftover carbon in their trunks. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports how scientists determine the amount of carbon stored in a tree, it's a question open for debate. When Bob Mara goes into the woods, he takes a tool with him, a hammer, his magic sonic hammer. It's not called a magic sonic hammer. It's called the sonic hammer, but I... I call it the magic sonic hammer just because it looks kind of cool. Mara is a biologist with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. And while the hammer isn't magical, it's about to do something pretty cool. Help us look inside a tree. To do that, Mara hammers nails into the trunk of a sugar maple in northwest Connecticut, girdling the tree with sensors. Then he circles, tapping on each nail. Each tap is recorded by a very polite computer. Mara's recording sound waves, measuring how fast sound travels from the nail he hits to all the other nails around the tree. It's called sonic tomography. Think of it like a CAT scan for trees, a way to peer inside a trunk without drilling to see if a tree is rotting or solid wood. The denser the wood, the faster the sound waves. Dense wood is really good at storing carbon. But if a tree is less dense inside, that could indicate decay. And also that the tree might not be as good at storing carbon as we think. Using a grant from the National Science Foundation, Mara tested his tomography idea, scanning around 70 trees in northwest Connecticut. He found dozens were rotting inside, even ones that on the outside looked good. What's going on inside of these trees, it's kind of hidden to us for the most part. Trees that that otherwise look to be perfectly fine and you would have no reason to think otherwise can have internal decay taking place. Mara says that's an important consideration, especially when it comes to carbon storage or sequestration. If we're going to look to forests as a way to sequester carbon, we should develop much more accurate estimates of how much carbon is actually sequestered. Because, well, there are whole markets based on this. Like in California, its aggressive pollution regulations have fostered an expansive cap-and-trade program. California polluters can offset emissions by buying up carbon credits, and landowners across America can profit by proving their forest is really good at storing atmospheric carbon. Rajinder Sahoda is with the California Air Resources Board, which oversees the program. She explains the process. What you do is you have a measurement at the beginning of that time period that says, here's how much is in my forest. Then, through yearly audits, landowners prove their land over time can store carbon in a way that's better than business as usual. Here's how my forest looks relative to what is the common amount of stored carbon, and here's how much, if I undertake some activities, I can increase that carbon storage in my forest. But measuring all that? Well, here's where it gets tricky. When you look at any tree, especially a hardwood tree, and look at its shape, I mean, that's really complex. Christopher Woodall is a researcher with the U.S. Forest Service. His equations are used by California to calculate stored carbon. You estimate the volume, and then you got to figure out the biomass within that volume, and then turn that into an estimate of carbon. To do that, foresters don't go out and look at every tree. Instead, they sample, measuring a variety of trees and plugging those numbers into a complex model. But forestry science is evolving. Woodall has since published work saying the equations need to be improved, in part because new technologies are making biomass estimates more efficient and precise. I think we're not too far away from not necessarily sampling trees in the U.S., but actually having a true census. Eventually, 
with a combination of satellites and with drones and laser scanning, uh, we're headed to the point where we, we might be able to know something about every tree in the U.S. He says that could happen soon or in 50 years. But for now, scientists are taking baby steps, trying to assess the role of forests and climate change, because as Woodall says, it's too important to ignore. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Coming up, we'll go to Martha's Vineyard for a discussion of race, racism, and policing. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. It's a story we've been talking about for a while here. Almost 95% of people in Maine and Vermont identify as white, according to the most recent census data. That number is about 94% in New Hampshire. The reasons why are complicated, and they prompt honest questions like this one. Hi, my name is Clarilyn Bevan, and I live in Camden, Maine. And my question is, why is Maine so white? So Maine Public Radio's Willis Ryder Arnold went looking for an explanation. And here's the story. The first part of the answer to the question, why is Maine so white, has to do with geography and economics. Maine's the northeasternmost tip of the United States, far away from the American center of the Atlantic slave trade. The south was um, primarily uh, a rural, uh, agricultural, agrarian economy, which depended heavily on uh, slavery beginning in the 17th century for both the production of tobacco and of cotton uh, on a large scale. Maine State historian Earl Shuttleworth says while there were instances of slavery in Maine, its economy wasn't built on plantation farming. Maine relied instead on forestry, shipbuilding, and textile and mill industries fueled by water power. After the Civil War, some black populations immigrated largely to urban centers such as New York, Chicago, and Detroit, attracted by the growing opportunities of new industry. Shettleworth says Maine's economy just wasn't robust enough to attract those new workers. Nowhere in these, in these major patterns of both development and industry, which is what really fuels people's ability to, to live in a place and their, their work, do, do we find in, in Maine's history any large concentration of uh, people of color? Makes sense so far. But this next fact complicates matters. Maine was actually much more racially diverse in the 19th century than it is today. That's Kate McMahon, a historian at the Smithsonian Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C. She says a number of historic events influenced Maine's development as one of the whitest states in the U.S. First, the Civil War took a toll on black communities already established in Maine. That's because during the war, shipbuilding transitioned from wooden construction to steel. This eliminated many of the jobs, 
including coopering, which had employed African Americans who had settled in the state. All of those industries began to suffer. Those were the the most high-paying jobs. Those were stable, and they were jobs that African Americans could get. And McMahon says some struggled to find work in Maine's textile, shoe, and rope factories. African Americans could not get employed in those jobs. They were excluded because of their race. So there were no African Americans working there. They had gave preference to white immigrants. In addition, Maine also enacted anti-miscegenation laws, ensuring white and black people couldn't marry. And then, McMahon says, there's the story of Malaga Island, an interracial community off the coast of Phippsburg. And in 1912, the state of Maine had decided that they didn't want this colony of black people. They had all of the homes on the island were removed and raised Later, McMahon says, the Ku Klux Klan established itself in Maine and shaped the state's political climate, working to elect sympathetic government officials throughout the 1920s. By the 20s, you have all these economic circumstances that led to a lot of African Americans leaving the state of Maine, but also a lot of social uh, circumstances that were not conducive for people of color wanting to move to the state of Maine to settle. And You know, you have this economic exclusion and social exclusion. But what does all that history have to do with why Maine is still so white? So these grand narratives are often things that limit us. Myron Beasley teaches American studies at Bates College and says that over time, many people came to just think of Maine as a very white state. And for Beasley, that causes lingering problems, even in his own field of academia. I know a lot of the academic institutions, uh, you hear this phrase, oh, you know, Maine is so white. We can never attract people who are non-white because it's so white here. You know, that's a fallacious statement. But in many ways, in their liberal understanding, this progressive liberalism, they are promoting the very thing that they, they want to dismiss or they want to disrupt. Portland artist and educator Daniel Minter says that perception of Maine's whiteness can also obscure important historical realities, particularly about the state's earliest inhabitants. There are people of color here that have always been, you know, the Wabanaki here forever. How often do you hear of them being called Mainers, (laughs) you know? Minter, who came to Maine over a decade ago, sits next to the black and blue sketches of work that he says is about Malaga Island and the separation of interracial families at the hands of the state. He says African Americans, Latinos, Asians, and a growing number of African immigrants all call Maine home. Minter doesn't dispute the census numbers, but he says the very act of emphasizing Maine's whiteness creates its own air of exclusion. It's just that the the state has not needed to welcome us. You know, it hasn't needed to welcome people of color. So, to our listener, Claire Helan Bevan, we hope this may have helped to answer your question, why is Maine so white? For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Willis Ryder-Arnold. Another place in our region that's both a big tourist destination and overwhelmingly white is the Massachusetts island of Martha's Vineyard. Fewer than 800 of the island's 17,000 residents are African-American. But the island does have a local chapter of the NAACP, which calls itself one of the most diverse racially and ethnically. Reporter James Sneed went there to talk to the chapter's president. I am. 
only guy getting off the boat with the- <laughs> How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, How are you doing? Chief Blake. Yes, how are you doing? Not too bad. That's Eric Blake, police chief of Oak Bluff. He's giving me a tour of the town. He's also the president of the island's NAACP. What's unique here, like people aren't, you know, there isn't cross burnings, there isn't fights, there isn't, you know, police aren't, aren't manhandling people of color. And, you know, I, it's just, I'm like, okay, well, the first thing you need to do is look, you need to have an open discussion. You need to not be afraid to have the, the discussion. Don't, I'm not guilty that I'm white. I, I've, I've, I've actually been privileged. A police chief who's also the president of the NAACP, who also happens to be white. When I first learned about him, I have to admit I was shocked. To me, it seemed like a clear conflict of interest. According to their mission, one of the roles of the NAACP is to hold law enforcement accountable for their abuses. So for a police official to head a branch, it seemed like a case of foxes guarding hens. Sergeant, watch, we didn't know you were back already. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's doing a little story on some... uh, NAACP stuff and... Uh... After a tour of Oak Bluffs, Chief Blake and I headed to the station, where he's been the chief of police since 2003. He first became president of the local NAACP in 2013, and this past November, he won a fourth consecutive term unopposed. Are people usually more surprised that you're the police chief and the NAACP president, or are they more surprised that you're white and the NAACP president? Which are people who oh, are surprised oh, about? Oh, jeez. Uh, that I'm white. Yeah, that I'm white and the president. Absolutely. In the two-plus hours I interviewed Chief Blake, we talked about a lot, including the scandal surrounding Rachel Dolezal, former NAACP president for the Spokane, Washington chapter. When I first came out, I, I think it was one of our MLK events. I'm like, just for the record, I'm white. I'm white. <laughs> we also talked about the American origins of policing, an essay by NAACP founder W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah, they were, they were on patrol trying to bring back runaway slaves or keeping them in control. Um, you can't deny. Yeah. Don't, don't deny your history. Yeah. Be proud of who you are now, but don't deny your history. So. But in early 2015, Blake's two positions came into conflict. A few months previous, an unarmed black teenager was killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The teenager was Michael Brown. The officer is Darren Wilson. The whole country seemed to be talking about it. So was Martha's Vineyard. That January, the island's local NAACP organized a protest, apparently billed as a Black Lives Matter march. But in a photograph in the Martha's Vineyard Gazette, there are two All Lives Matter signs in the foreground, with a Black Lives Matter banner trailing off in the background. In adjoining articles, Police Chief Blake is paraphrased saying that all signs were welcome and maintained that the different messages on the signs were not, quote, a conflicting statement. Yeah, we did, on January 1st, I think it was 2015, we, we had a march. Yeah. And, um, and it came from members of the NAACP that said, and Lovey said, like, um... Can we do other signs as well? Like, all lives matter. And then someone said, you know, hey, can I do one? Blue lives matter. And and to be fair to everybody, I don't think people really understood what Black Lives Matter was fully about. Yeah. Right? I think it was just a movement and it was really hot and, you know, making a lot of headlines. So I don't know. There was people even questioning whether we should be saying that because, 
you know, we don't know what it is. Is, is it is it a radical group? Is it just a, you know... What do you think the National Organization of Black Lives Matter would have thought of your march? Uh, I think they would have thought you needed um, more education about what we're doing. Kumbaya. That's the kumbayanas of us. That's Gretchen Tucker Underwood. She lives in Martha's Vineyard year-round. Um, I'll bet you if you looked in that, you'd see people carrying signs that said, Police Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Uh, we're very kumbaya. We're very, we are the world. Tucker Underwood serves on the executive board for the local NAACP. She's also black. I've introduced him a couple of times in um, presentations that I've been a part of. And I'll say, and here is the president of the NAACP. And they said, no, that's Eric. That's the, and I said, yeah, that's what I'm trying to tell you all. It's a very unique situation. So I'm not surprised anymore. But people said, well, how the heck did that happen? Well, Tucker Underwood is part of why that happened. She's on the board that nominates the chapter president. I wouldn't put ask anybody to put any effort into trying to find a white police officer to be the president of their chapter. I wouldn't ask any chapter to do that. I would ask them to look among their membership and their leaders to see if there's somebody who is a strong advocate, who is a true advocate. If he happens to be the white police chief, then that's the way it would roll. But I wouldn't go the opposite way. Dr. Patricia Sullivan is a professor of history at the University of South Carolina. She literally wrote the book on the NAACP. Coincidentally, Dr. Sullivan has a summer home on Martha's Vineyard. Also, she's white. Are you familiar with Police Chief Eric Blake? Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's a conflict of interest? No. Mm-mm. I don't. I don't because I think that, A, he's, he's elected by the branch, and, and it's a terrific branch, very representative of... Um, you know, the Martha's Vineyard community. Sullivan says there may be a precedent for a cop leading the NAACP. It's hard to know. After all, there have been thousands of chapters since 1909. So, to her, what's happening on the vineyard isn't surprising. She wonders if it even matters. The, the success of chapters is less dependent on who is, you know, what... I uh, um, I agree a hundred percent, but can't do do not agree at all that this is just a little bit weird or out of the ordinary. <laughs> I see. I, I, I'm not saying that it's not a good thing or that it can't be great. Not. It's just it's just a little. Can you can you just say it's, it's a little weird? It's a little weird. <laughs> in, in the context of wh- how we see these things and what we know based on what gets reported and and how you know, it would seem that way. Well, I think it's an example that uh, I'm going to pay more attention to because I would really like to know what makes it work. That's Berkshire County NAACP President Dennis Powell, whose regional chapter includes the birthplace of W.E.B. Du Bois. If that chapter elected him as president, then they might be a lot further in their relationship, their race relationship, than other communities. You know, it's all, it, it all boils down to a person's beliefs and their um, wanting to really work for the cause and understand the mission of the NAACP. I mean, that's, that's the real core. And I think you can be black or white and still accomplish that. But not necessarily uh, a police chief. Exactly. Because those are the two that I really find conflicting. Would it work in Berkshire County presently? I doubt it. But up there, maybe, you know, it can. I still had the questions that led me here, though. Is there a conflict between his positions of power? 
or is the chief just exceptional? Sure. Yes, I am. <laughs> I am. I don't. I. You know. I got to be completely honest with you. There was there like this year. I was like, you know what? It's a lot, but I really don't. I don't. I. I'm trying to be as honest as possible. I. I don't believe that the the two positions should should conflict. But I. I, I don't think I'm exceptional. I. I think um, it's the only vehicle here to to do social. You know, re- really, right now. Um, so I, I wanted to be part of it. The NAACP has a history of working within the system. That's what gave rise to the more radical organizations like SNCC, the Black Panthers, and, in modern times, Black Lives Matter. That history might actually see the example of Martha's Vineyard as a natural evolution for the organization. And if Chief Blake got voted in by the chapter members, they must believe that he represents them. I can't say for sure that this would work elsewhere unless I saw it with my own eyes. I have no idea how it works. All I know is they say it works for them. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm James Sneed. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia, and the executive producer is Katie Talarski. Music featured on the show this week is all from New England, and it's by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Fat Astronaut, and the Adam Ezra Group. You can find a playlist of New England musicians featured on the show at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public Radio.